Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100 and use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors. But as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veterans Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tell a friend. We are on social media, Facebook and Twitter, at AmVet Show, and of course, AmericanVeteranShow.com. And that's our new and improved website, and we are putting the finishing touches on making sure that episodes that you hear on the radio can actually go to the website. We could not do a program like this, and thank you to our longtime presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com. Fighting on behalf of veterans every single day, their number, 303-999-9999. Coming up, you'll hear from a military mom, but she's more than just a military mom, and that, to me, is more than enough. Two children in the United States Marine Corps, but We'll introduce you to Abigail Manning. She is straight ahead, and you're going to take a lot from it, whether you're connected with the military or not. Later on in the program, we highlight an incredible Medal of Honor recipient. And then the second half of the program, we dedicate to our Vietnam veterans. We say, of course, to you, welcome home. We thank our Vietnam veteran families and spouses, of course. But you'll hear, well, Vietnam veteran speaks in very blunt raw terms and that will be the program for today we're just a couple of weeks away by the way from our season six premiere let's get into it now on the american veteran show and introduce you to an amazing woman doing amazing things her name abigail manning you can find out more online about her abigailgmanning.com so purple threads is limiting personal thoughts based on past traumas that become physiologically tied in what we think say do So when someone is not acting great, we don't look at the behavior. We think about what's deeper than that. We also have to have control over our own set. Like most of us aren't taught we have control and power over our mind, what we think, right? You know, and but we can. We can turn off the negativity and we can rewire those limiting thoughts of I'm not good enough. I'm stupid. I'm dumb. I'm ugly. I'm never going to make it. 
you know, my daughter could easily said, I'm a girl. How could I become a strong Marine? Mm-hmm. Right. So putting limits. And that's why different places have me come in. You're asking about what do I do? Yeah. Well, it's just kind of changed. Um, like unconscious bias is something I talk about. Um, building a healthy work environment is something I talk about. And it all stems from these limiting beliefs that we have. And the curriculum, I've made it able for people to say things that they've been through that are really hard. And for them to say, does this sound normal to you? Am I crazy? Yeah. You know, I could never do that. And then we rewire it into proactive ways of having positive mindsets. This may be kind of corny, uh, I admit, but how important is that, especially today? I was saying in our first hour, you know, there are there are certain things and uh, I don't I love variety on the program. It's why I welcome folks like you in, because it's not always going to be about uh, politics on this program. But we, we we could maybe all use a little bit of uh, after the last couple of years, just a little more clear thinking and kind of readjusting, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I also think empathy. That's the one thing I love is a natural consequence of the Purple Threads curriculum. I don't have to know what your past traumas have been, and they could be small, they could be big. It's not a competition. People always say, you know, especially when I'm working with military, they're like, you know, my buddy didn't come back. I'm like, okay, but you were at war. Yeah, but it's not like, you know, and so we break down what is trauma, and trauma is like the forest fires, you know, the fires that came through sweeping through. That's absolutely trauma. And there's all these layers of trauma, and I don't have to know yours. I just have to know that you have them. And you may mask it really good. You may look super successful and confident and all this, but everybody has a burden that they're shouldering. And so if I can look at you and I can approach somebody and and um, has a different opinion than me, I can just say, you know what, I want to understand where this comes from. So a perfect example was Wounded Warrior Project. I do a monthly workshop, and they just asked me to start doing a second monthly workshop on Purple Threads exclusively. And one lady was just adamant about her opinion. And she was like kind of talking over everybody, and she was like just so angry about it. And I just kept... Well, tell me more about that. Tell me more about it. And what it turned out to be is she has a compromised immune system and she is scared to death of getting sick and she's had pneumonia many times and things like that. And she feels like she got off of that. So because she got off of being so angry when I said, so you're taking personal responsibility that you have fear over getting sick. Totally understandable, totally justified, but you're really, really scared And your amygdala kicks in and we talk about fight, flight and freeze and that attack and defend and block comes out over this topic. And she's like, I never thought of it that way. Mm. I said, so wouldn't it be better if you put a sign on your door that says, I have a compromised immune system. Please help me and wear your mask. Mm. There's just way we can change how we're looking at each other and how we communicate with each other. And that's what I do. Amen. Abigail Manning is our guest. She's here in studio. Feel free to. Uh, give us a, a phone call, 303-696-1971. If you have a question, comment, uh, you can also do that via email, social media, and uh, text the studio via the free-to-download app. We'll take our first break coming up in just a few minutes. A couple of things. You mentioned the fires. It's amazing to me. It hasn't even been 14 days since Superior and Louisville and parts of, of Boulder County went through that incredible trauma. Do people in those types of situations, in your experience and what you have done, do people... Does it really go down to the individual on how they process it? And, you know, a husband and wife may process a trauma like that in completely different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. It depends on how many traumas you've been through, and it depends on how you personalize it. Um, so I've been through trauma in my life, and if you look at my bio, you know anything about me. I've you know been through childhood abuse by both my parents, domestic violence. And so one of the things is, do they look at themselves as a victim, or do they look at someone who's experienced 
going through a fire. So the victim will start thinking different. That's that cognitive like wiring in our brain about how we can start thinking and seeing ourselves different. I'm a victim. I was a victim. I still am a victim. You start behaving in a different way when you start feeling a different way versus I've had a really challenging life experience. And I'm not saying Pollyanna it, right? right? These are traumas. These are tragedies. These are huge losses. And it took me a lot of work and effort to get over some of the traumas that I've been through. But I also know I got through it better, faster, easier, stronger, because I didn't put myself in that box. I didn't put that label on myself. Do we live in a society you think that, and I certainly do have uh, my opinion on this, we live in a society where it is a lot easier to be a victim, if you know what I mean. And you get it in your mind that, you know, I've been victim. We see this in politics and what politicians talk about a lot. They will victimize, even if somebody doesn't consider themselves a victim, but they went through a trauma like the fire. You know, you could get, I'm not trying to make this political, but you could get a presidential visit to a fire site and they will talk to you as if you have been victimized and you are the victim. And I, I don't know if if you feel that it's, it's fairly easy to be a victim in myriad different ways today. I think so. And I think that's that mindset, right? It's a really strong mindset. And I'm a strong person. I raise my kids with strong values. I raise my kids with like, I understand. I understand that really stinks. But you didn't study for that test as hard as you know you could. So that was the result that you got. Or you got a bum end of the deal. That happens. Life happens. No one targeted you. As a little kid, I was in the wrong house at the wrong time. Mm. It wasn't because of me what I did, what I said. No, I was just the wrong, in the wrong place. And that is life. And it that is. is life. And it takes a tough mindset and tools. We aren't taught the tools that I teach in my classes on how to rewire those negatives into positives, how to take over the amygdala, go back to your prefrontal cortex in simple everyday language, you know, like, you know, okay, we're going to do breathing. We're going to do this. We're going to, and understanding the purple threads. And because that's what gets us into that victim state is when we've had purple threads, limiting personal thoughts running through our head. It's easy to go down that path. Mm -hmm. It is hard to take the right course and, and stay true and stay noble. Our thanks to Abigail Manning. Thanks for not only taking the time on our regular program, but to make sure that people are doing okay and trying to use her expertise to make sure that others can benefit. And of course, we salute her for being the parent of one former Marine, though there's really not such a thing, and one active Marine as well. When we come back, we introduce you to another incredible Medal of Honor recipient. That comes up next. This is the American Veteran Show, American Veteran Show. to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs. So much appreciative of your time on this Sunday. We're just a couple of weeks away from our season six premiere right here on the American Veteran Show. And as we head into this new year and kind of get settled, please tell a friend about the program. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, both at Am Am Vet Show. Am Vet Show on Facebook, and Twitter. We always like to tip our caps, to salute, and to say thank you to those who have received the highest honor, the Medal of Honor. Born and raised in Olympia, Washington. Uh, it was a great place to be raised when I was 
in my pre-teens, uh, the Second World War was on, and everybody was uh, uh, doing their part for the war effort. And so it was a very patriotic community. Did that give you some indication that when you became old enough, you wanted to serve in the military? Well, my dad served. My uncles all served. I had one great uncle who lost both his sons at the beginning of the war, and he lived with us uh, uh, for, for, for the last part of the war. But uh, I don't know if that did it. or, or I joined a guard when I was 15 uh, because they had a basketball court, and uh, and they were they were shooting artillery at... Uh, at targets in the air. And this was all interesting to me. But the Guard was a social organization as well as, as the military. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was a, an all-American baseball player, and I graduated from high school at 5'6 and 145 pounds. And I was the smallest guy on the all-American team, and I was the cleanup hitter. <laughs> and uh, so I, in the Army, I thought I could play ball because there was a lot of great ball players in the Army in those days. Ted Williams was an was a aviator. And so I, uh, I thought I'd get to play ball in the military. And, uh, of course, I got stupid trying to throw a hand grenade far enough away so I, the noise didn't bother me. Uh, I tore the rotator cuff of my shoulder, and that, oh, no. that, that ended any baseball thoughts. So how old were you when you joined? Uh, I, I, I didn't join. I, I accepted a draft because I only, I only served two years for the draft. And uh, so uh, I was uh, 19 when, uh, when I came in. Obviously something changed, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, it lasted a lot longer than two years. Yeah. Uh, so where did you go for, for basic training, and, and how did it progress from there? I went. They sent me 12 miles from home for basic that's pretty stupid. If you draft somebody, if I was a reluctant draftee, that was not the distance to do that. And I told everybody I was going in the Army and going to Korea because that's what everybody did. I went to Fort Lewis, and then they sent me to Fort Warden, Washington, which was 47 miles from home, and I was running boats, M-boats, and I was learning how to do assaults with a, from 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 like the Inchon invasion. I think that's what we were training for. Right. But uh, I had a first sergeant to call my buddy and I in and he said, we're too screwed up to, to be in the Army and, and we might make corporal someday and he didn't want that on his conscience. But we'd make good second lieutenants and he had us sign the paperwork, get the hell out of his unit to go to OCS. And, yeah, we went to leadership school and then OCS. And then what? Both of us got through. <laughs> Good. I figured that, given the rest of the story. But uh, yeah. where did you go from there? Uh, well, uh, I went to Engineer OCS at Belvoir here. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I got through that, uh, they wanted all of us that graduated and were healthy to go to flight school. Because the Corps of Engineers had the two largest aviation outfits in the world. They had over 100 aviators uh, stationed in, out of San Francisco and then well over 100 out of Panama. And they were in mapping and topo all over the world. I flew in the Arctic, uh, float skis and wheels on the airplanes. I flew in the uh, desert in Libya. Uh, all same, we had the same aircraft, the same equipment. Had Arctic sleeping bags, Arctic tents, f uh, float skis and wheels for the aircraft. And, and uh, 
the Army was really showing how smart it was, sending us over there to clear mines at the same time we're trying to map. There's three million live mines in the ground in Libya in 1956. We got 7,000 of them my first year. And then the Army decided we should have a mine report. We should fill out a form and tell them how many mines we cleared. We suddenly couldn't find the form anymore. We didn't keep count. We didn't really give a rat's ass. One thing we knew is that our little mine clearing wasn't going to have a hell of a lot of impact, and pretty quick they'd figure out maybe we ought to clear more. And uh, maybe mine clearing would become more important than mapping. And uh, mapping was the key. You had to, if you didn't map that desert, they wouldn't have their oil getting out right now. And that's what we were doing. The oil companies followed us across the damn desert. So it, uh, they also had air-conditioned trailers for sleeping. They had uh, freezers. They had frozen steaks. They had all the good stuff. And we're eating five-in-one rations and living in Arctic tents. Those guys didn't clear the minefields. We did. They followed us. At what point did you, this is obviously a few years later, but at what point did you get an inkling that you would probably end up going to Vietnam? Uh, that was in 65. I was down in the Dahmer. People forget we went down there. We'd already trained as the Air Assault Division at 11th Air Assault. And uh, while I was in the Dahmer, uh, one of the wives indicated to a, a sergeant, as she called him, an SOB over the radio, that uh, we were going to Vietnam. We didn't get the word from the Pentagon until somewhat later. And uh, you know, we had to bring our aircraft home, bring our people home. I had uh, 12 days to get my family to Seattle and for me to get back, get my unit on a carrier going to, to Vietnam. They sent us commanders over by air so that we'd get a, the experience before troops got there of flying in country and working with uh, assaults the way they, they were doing them. What was your bird of choice? What was my what? What was your plane? What, what did you fly? Hueys. We were flying uh, D models when we went to Vietnam. Then we got H's, and the gun companies were C's. And uh, somebody who was not obviously an aviator decided that uh, the C model gunship should be replaced by the Cobra. And uh, that was the dumbest move as far as an aviation unit would go. The Cobra has two people. One sits right behind the other. It's enclosed. So it's air-conditioned. That's very nice for the pilot. You can't hear people shooting at you. you the, the Huey, the pilots are alongside each other. One's got the left front, one's got the right front. There's a door gunner and a crew chief back there. Then they got M60s, and they pick up most of the ground fire because people don't shoot at the front of a gunship. Not smart people don't. Living people don't either because... <laughs> If you shoot at the front of me, I got many guns and rockets, and we can raise all sorts of hell. I got a cannon and a, and a C model Huey. But uh, the, the Cobra has all those, but they've only got the two pilots like this. 
so they could fly over the same point of ground three or four times and be being fired on every time and not know it until they're hit. Now, I prefer to know it. And having those two guys in the back and the pilots up front to look just made really good sense. But somebody sold us on the Cobra. <laughs> that was a bad buy. Bad buy. Salute to all of those who have received the Medal of Honor over the decades and indeed more than a century. We cannot thank you enough, and of course, we understand that most people, if they were given a choice, would never receive the Medal of Honor. When we come back, well, it's been around for years, but it's a Vietnam veteran talking about his experience in Vietnam in his own words. It must be heard. And we'll do that next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen Tubbs. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much, as always, for you tuning in. Don't forget our website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. You can listen to every episode we have done almost now through five full seasons. So many great interviews, one-on-ones, military charities that we have highlighted. It truly is an honor to put this program together and just a couple of weeks away from kicking off season six. Many of you, well, if you're a Vietnam veteran, maybe you've seen this in the past, but someone who served in Vietnam and can actually just sit down and speak. Now, in this case, eh, multiple cigarettes uh, were consumed, but commemorations uh, happen, of course, and we try to welcome home every Vietnam veteran. But whenever we can give a veteran who served in Vietnam a platform, no matter if the interview was from 35, 40 years ago or just last week, we like to present that to you, and we will now on the American Veteran Show. Well, when I got to Vietnam, I, I literally expected to be welcomed with open arms by the people of Vietnam. I had in my head the black and white newsreels I had seen on the Walter Cronkite 20th century show of the American troops rolling through villages in France and being showered with wine and flowers and kisses. Um, and as we were driving down, uh, a guy from the battalion I was assigned to picked me up in a jeep at Da Nang and we had to drive the 20 miles to where my battalion was located and I, I really was... Uh, disappointed that there weren't people standing along the road waving to me and you know offering me flowers and things. I really expected to be greeted as with open arms as a liberator, and it was as, it was as though I was invisible, it was as though I didn't exist. Um, and that was a little perplexing. Moreover, it was it was uh, they looked funny and they acted funny. I mean, just riding along in this jeep the first day I got there. They lived in little straw huts, and they had animals in their in their backyards, and uh, they weren't like us. They smelled bad. The whole country smelled bad. You could smell it. It, was, it hurt the nose, um, and that was disturbing. And then I was there for about on the third day. I was there, 
this guy who had picked me up in the Jeep, uh, a corporal who I was ultimately going to replace, uh, he and I were in the battalion intelligence section. We were sent down to the uh, tractor park, the amphibious tractor park, to meet a bunch of detainees. It was our responsibility to take care of prisoners, and detainees were a classification of civilians. They were not combatants. They were they were uh, they could be detained for questioning, which is how they were why they were called detainees. Um, and Jimmy and I went down there to the track park, and two tractors came in. They had a whole bunch of uh, Vietnamese up on top, high flat-topped vehicles, about eight or nine feet tall. And as the tracks wheeled into the park, uh, the Marines up on top immediately began uh, hurling these people off. They were bound hand and foot so that they had no way of breaking their falls. Um, and they were old men, women, children, no young men. And I, I couldn't believe these guys were treating these people this way. And I, I turned to Jimmy and said, I grabbed him by the arm and said, what are, what are those guys doing? These aren't, these are, we're supposed to be helping these people. And Jimmy turned to me and he looked at my hands on his arm, I sort of took them off and he said, Earhart, you better keep your mouth shut until you know what's going on around here. And I think it was at that point that I realized things were not quite what I was expecting. Um, it went downhill from there. And again, I can't even begin to explain in the space of time that you have uh, all of the things that went into it, but I began to understand, you know, it became obvious that the enemy was the very people in these villages around us, and we were in a very heavily populated area at that time. Um, they were the enemy, or at least the enemy was out there somewhere and we couldn't tell one from another. And day after day, our patrols went out uh, and we ran into snipers and mines, and snipers and mines, and snipers and mines. I saw four armed enemy soldiers the first eight months I was in Vietnam. And yet our battalion during that same period of time sustained 75 mining and sniping incidents per month, over half of them resulting in casualties. This is for a unit of about a thousand men. But there was no one to fight back at. And you begin to think, these people are the enemy. They're all the enemy. And then you go through villages and, you know, you get sniped at and so you call an airstrike in on the village and the whole village goes up. Or you go through a place and you search it and you burn houses and blow them up. Um, you know, the common perception, the notion I had when I was in high school was that it was the Viet Cong terrorized the Vietnamese population, uh, forced them to fight against the Americans on pain of death. What I began to understand in Vietnam was that they didn't need to do things like that. All they had to do was let a Marine patrol go through a village, and whatever was left of that village, they had all the recruits that they needed. Um, I began to understand why the Vietnamese didn't greet me with open arms, why they in fact hated me, but of course that didn't change the fact that, that 
my friends were getting killed and injured every day, and, and the only place that you could focus your own anger and fear was on those civilians who were there. Uh, so it was this self-perpetuating mechanism. The longer that we stayed in Vietnam, the more Viet Cong there were, because we created them, we produced them. Um, none of that distilled itself into the, the clear kind of expression that I'm presenting now. Um, what I began to understand within days, and which became patently clear within months, was that what was going on here was not what I had been told. What was going on here was nuts, and I wanted to get out. I knew if I were still alive on March the 5th, 1968, they'd stick me on an airplane in Da Nang. We used to call it the Freedom Bird. And I could fly away and forget the whole thing. Turned out not to be quite so easy to forget it, but that was the notion. And, and certainly for my last eight, nine months in Vietnam, I ceased to think. I quite literally ceased to think about why I was there or what I was doing. The sole purpose for my being in Vietnam at that point was to stay alive until I could get out. And the reason for that is that, you know, the kinds of questions that began to present themselves were just, the questions themselves were ugly. And I didn't want to know the answers. It's, it's, like, it's like banging on a door. You knock on a door, and the door opens slightly, and behind that door it's dark, and there's and there's loud noises coming like there's like there's wild animals in there or something and you peer into the darkness and you can't see what's there but you can hear all this ugly stuff you want to step into that room no way you just sort of back out quietly pull the door shut behind you and walk away from it and that's what was going on those que the questions themselves were too ugly to even ask let alone try to deal with the answers now, part of what was going on is that I could not have made sense of what I was seeing and doing in Vietnam because I did not have a full deck of cards. I needed to have an understanding of the political and historical realities that brought us to Vietnam before I could make sense of what I was seeing. We will have more with this Vietnam veteran coming up again, seen on YouTube well more than a million times and it is this kind of casual yet dramatic way in which this vietnam veteran experiences well and remembers it's truly amazing stay with us part two of this vietnam veterans interview coming up next this is the american veteran show americanveteranshow.com Stephen Tubbs. Our final segment this week on the American Veteran Show, we will have part two of the Vietnam Veteran Interview straight ahead. But first, just a couple of things of note this past week in the news in relation to 
veterans and active duty. $50,000. That's how much the Army will give highly skilled recruits who can fill critical jobs. It's the highest bonus the Army has ever paid. Closed schools and the competitive employment market have made recruiters' jobs especially difficult. Now, as it heads into the toughest months of the year for recruiting, the Army is hoping an eye-popping amount of cash will be enough to persuade young people to, as the old advertising slogan once said, be all that they can be. Christopher Cruz, CBS News, Washington. And one other note from this past week. Uh, Sad to say, but important to say, keep an eye on North Korea. Since attempts at diplomacy collapsed in 2019 between leader Kim Jong-un and then-President Trump, the North's testing of short-range weapons has shifted into overdrive, including missiles hidden in and launched from a train. And a year ago, what appeared to be a submarine model literally paraded through the streets. Kim Jong-un made a New Year's resolution to bolster his country's military, even as the U.S. and its allies keep pushing him to back down from his nuclear ambitions. Tina Krause, CBS News. And of course, on the program, we certainly do our best to look back from the past week and bring you important stories relating to active duty and military, and we will continue to do so throughout the year, as always. Finally, as we wrap up this final segment, part two of our interview, it's the Vietnam veteran that so many people around the country and the world have heard from. I began to acquire the other cards in the deck during the three years or so after I got back from Vietnam. But while I was there, nothing made sense because I kept trying to, you know, play this game with 27 cards instead of 52 cards, and it kept not coming out right. And I didn't know why. All I knew was that it was nuts. I mean, it became it became clear within three or four months that my reasons for being in Vietnam were were not clear. I mean, the, this notion of defending the people against these invaders from North Vietnam. Uh, the people hated me. The Vietnamese people hated me. And it was perfectly, uh, that was perfectly clear. I mean, people didn't say good morning to you. People didn't, <laughs> people hated me. Um, I know that other people's experience, some other people's experience was different. But uh, in my own experience, the Vietnamese people hated me and I gave them every reason to hate me. I beat them. I sometimes killed them. I destroyed their houses. I destroyed their crops. I destroyed their fields. I destroyed their culture. Why in the hell should those people like me? And I could see that I was doing that. And I could see that nothing we were doing was having any impact on the war itself. You know, the funny thing about Vietnam is that I, I was getting Time magazine every week. It came in the mail. I could read about my war even as I sat in the middle of it. And I would read about what Lyndon Johnson would say and what McNamara would say and what Rusk would say. And I could look around and see that, uh-uh, I don't know what war they're talking about, but that's not what's going on here. We actually had an incident happen where one of our line companies uh, stumbled upon a, a fairly large uh, cache of uh, Viet Cong weapons and ammunition. And I read in the Stars and Stripes, the daily newspaper that we received, this this little action actually made it into the papers, and we read that we had set the Viet Cong effort back by at least four months in our area. 
within a week of that article appearing in the paper, within, within 10 days of the incident itself, the bridge, 150 meters in front of our battalion compound, was dropped by Viet Cong sappers. An Amtrak coming in from uh, the horseshoe area from one of the line companies uh, hit a 50-pound box mine. Several men were killed. A bunch more were wounded. A patrol out at Fukrok Bridge was ambushed. Several people were killed. Several people were wounded. I mean, nobody told the Viet Cong that they'd been set back for four months. And yet this is what you're reading in the newspapers. This is what you're being told back in the United States. I could see that, that the war went on day after day after day interminably at the same pace no matter what we did. I'm wasting your film. When I, when I left Vietnam, uh, I was, at the time, I was, I was in the midst of the Battle for Way City during Tet, 1968, February 68. And I'd been up in the city for two and a half, three weeks. Um, and I knew that my day was, was coming, but I wasn't sure when. And at that point, we weren't thinking about things like that. Um, and we were in the middle of a, of a, a low-key firefight. We were exchanging fire with uh, some guys across the street from us out along the eastern, uh, the northeast section of of Way City, um, what was left of my unit, the scouts, uh, about six of us, and a jeep comes hauling up the street along the river and uh, whips into this little compound where we were and says, Earhart, your orders are in. Let's go. It's a lieutenant, my boss, and I... Uh, stood... Uh, well, I didn't exactly stand up, but... Uh, I immediately began to strip off my gear and distribute it to the other guys who were there and said, so long, see you back in the world. Got on a jeep. Last thing I saw of those guys, they were laying down covering fire for us. We burned our way back down the street. Uh, there was a chopper sitting on the LZ. I got on a bird. was up 3,000 feet above Way City 10 minutes after I knew I was on my way out and uh, went through some processing. I ended up, they yanked me out early because my, one of my older brothers by this time had arrived in Vietnam and they arranged for me to spend a couple of days with him. Um, and I got back, uh, I got back in early March, was, came in at night, went through more processing, a place called Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, and then uh, I was free to go, and I had I was st still had time in the Marines. I had a month's leave, basically, before I had to report to another duty station in North Carolina. And I got a taxi, and there I was, my first view of the United States, and I was really, I could hardly wait. And it was absolute impenetrable fog. We came across the Oakland Bay Bridge, couldn't see 10 feet, couldn't see anything. Um, got to the airport. There was part of what affected my coming back. I was happy to be alive. I was excited, but at the same time, I was 
um, very ambivalent. I was I was afraid partly because see, I had a girlfriend when I went over there, and uh, in September, eight months after I was there, I got a Dear John letter from her, and I kept hoping that I'd be able to fix this up once I got back, and. Uh, I did not know what kind, of, and that that woman, that girl, had become the focus of my life while I was in Vietnam. She had she had ceased to be a real person. She'd become this icon, um, and then of course she had sort of you know said <laughs> take a hike, and but you can't just let go of of a vision like that of the thing that has kept you going. Uh, so I was scared about all of that. I didn't know what I was going to find when I got back, finally got back to the East Coast. To all of you Vietnam veterans, of course, and your families, we say to those veterans, welcome home. And we say to the family members, thank you for being loved ones of such an important generation. That wraps up the program for producer Matt Steinkruger. I'm Stephen Tubbs. We'll talk to you next week with a brand new episode. And again, just a couple of weeks away from our season six Premier. Have a terrific week ahead, and remember our truth. The American Veterans Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteransShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veterans Show. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, an infant formula company on a mission to get a lot closer to the most super, super food on the planet, breast milk. Our patented protein blend has more of the important and most abundant proteins actually found in breast milk. We're the first and only U.S.-made formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. We even conducted the largest clinical trial by a new infant formula company in a quarter century with clinically proven benefits like easier digestion, less spit-up, and softer poops versus a leading infant formula. And we make our own formula in the USA and our very own factories in Iowa, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.